Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, imagine that you're out camping with a bunch of friends and family, and then all of a sudden, in the distance, you see a bear charging to where you're at. And knowing that no human being can outrun a bear, what is your strategy? Well, you know very well that you don't have to actually outrun the bear. You just have to outrun everyone else that's there with you. (laughs) You don't have to be the fastest. You just can't be the slowest. You don't have to be first. You just can't be last. So as long as the bear is occupied eating someone else, then he's not going to have time to eat you. Uh, That's kind of gruesome, but okay. Uh, So, well, this strategy might work for surviving a bear attack, even though this is the weakest, selfish, and most cowardly way to do so. However, the problem is that people try to use the same approach with the law of God when the law attacks their conscience. When the law of God is preached to us and we're caught in our sin, what is the first thing that people do? They immediately point out the multitude of other sinners around them. In fact, this is some sort of self-defense. So when we're called to repentance, we instinctually say, well, nobody's perfect. Everybody does this, right? Or when our sin is pointed out to us and it's rebuked, then we say, well, what about so-and-so? He's doing it too. Or even when, uh, when, when the sin is pointed out uh, and we say, look, why are you talking to me? This person over here, that person has done something worse. You don't know about it, but I'm going to tell you about it. Right? And what's so foolish is that so often we think that this strategy is going to work somehow. When it comes to eternal life, so many people think that this method will save them. So you go ask someone off the street and then you say, look, if you're going to die tonight, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And I would say the great and vast majority of them will say something like, well, sure, I hope so. And I'm a pretty good person. Right? You know this well. Uh, and in fact, this is just a polite way of saying <laughs> uh, there are a lot of people way worse than I am. So that's got to count for something and that must boost my ranking. And so we apply this cowardly bear attack strategy to our own salvation thinking, look, I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be better than this guy, this person sitting next to me, this person in the pew, this neighbor. And so the Christian life turns into nothing more than some sort of uh, self-justification that is pointing out the sins of others to minimize your own. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the gospel lesson for today. The Pharisee uses this strategy to try and receive God's favor. So he goes up to the temple to pray and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even that guy over there, that tax collector. That's his prayer. And even though this man's arrogance is painfully obvious in the parable, the problem is that we ourselves don't see this arrogance in ourselves when we do it in more subtle ways. And what are these subtle ways? This happens when deep down inside you're kind of happy that someone else stumbles and falls into sin. Because as far as you're concerned, this is just one more person that you've become better than and you've just moved up in the ranking. 
Or this happens when you're proud of being a Christian because you think it's some sort of thing, uh, some sort of decision that you yourself made or that there must have been something great and wonderful in you that God saw in order to make you his child. Or this happens when you look down on others who struggle with sin and doubt instead of having compassion on them and helping them out of it. Or this happens when you get a little ounce of joy in your heart when someone tells you what they're doing, uh, when you tell someone uh, what they're doing wrong because you get to put them in their place, which apparently is beneath you. This happens when you treat others with disrespect because they're obviously not on the same level as you and don't deserve the same respect and honor and love that you do. All of these things you do are part of the strategy to outrun God's law. As if God is going to be too busy with every other sinner, all the real sinners, and not have enough time to judge you. And this strategy isn't new at all. In, in fact, uh, nobody taught you how to do it either. It's what your heart naturally does since birth. It's because this finger-pointing and this blame-gain kind of heart is the one you inherited from your parents. So when Adam and Eve fell into sin, they hid from God, and God called out to them saying, where are you? Not that God didn't know where they were, simply that he's giving them the chance to repent, uh, the the chance to uh, confess their sins. But nevertheless, Adam doesn't confess his sins. He simply gives a reason why he's doing what he's doing. So God says, where are you? And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He didn't say where he was. Then when God says, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So at this point, you'd think Adam is going to confess his sin and say, yes. But he simply says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruits of the tree and I ate. (laughs) So if you, if you pay attention, you understand that he didn't answer God's question with a yes or no, which is simply a yes or no question that you eat of it. In fact, the first words out of Adam's mouth were the woman. But God didn't ask him about Eve. He asked him about him. He said, have you eaten of the tree? And instead of answering, he talked about Eve, the woman, and then how it was God's brilliant idea to give him that woman who then caused this whole mess, right? In fact, you saw something similar in the Old Testament reading after Cain killed his brother Abel. God asked Cain, where's your brother? And instead of answering, Cain answers uh, God's question with a question saying, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? Right? It's the same tactic, trying to uh, get away from the words of God and to evade the judgment that is coming. So I can't tell you how many times I've heard the same dialogue over and over and over again, but with different questions and with different names. It's all the same. You confront someone and then you say, hey, did you do this? Whatever this is. And the first words out of the person's mouth is someone else's name or some sort of snooty question. And what follows is how it's really the other person's fault for why they did something they shouldn't have done or why they didn't do something they should have done or how they're in the grand scheme of things not responsible for what was done. And this way of thinking and talking is the exact way the Pharisee is thinking and talking. 
Instead of praying that God be gracious with the extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, and the tax collectors to bring them to repentance, he, he brings them up only to tear them down, only to exalt himself. And this approach will never work. And why won't it work? Because the premise of this is flawed. So I'm going to give you another analogy to help you understand what's going on. And I know it's probably going to sound confusing that I'm using a bunch of stories to explain one story. And I don't usually use stories in the sermon, so I decided to put them all together in the same sermon on Sunday. Uh, So, uh, nevertheless, let's change the analogy. Instead of a bear attack, think of it as a lethal disease. So now in this analogy, it's not that someone is being chased by a bear. It's that you go camping and everyone gets this horrifying lethal disease. In fact, it's not even just your little group, but everywhere you go in the world, everybody has this illness. And everywhere you go, there's this fatal illness floating around. And some people are coughing more than others. Some are weeping in pain and agony. Others are screaming and shouting out. Others are bleeding out of the orifices of their body, all to varying degrees. Yet everyone has the same thing, even though the intensity of the symptoms vary according to how far along the disease is. So after camping, you go to the doctor because you have this little uh, tickle in your throat or an itch in your eye. The doctor looks at you and says, look, I ran the tests and they came back and you have the lethal, fatal, deadly disease as well. And then you just look at the doctor and then you laugh and say, you've got to be kidding me. I feel fine. I just have a sore throat or an itchy eye. And all of these other people in the hall have way worse symptoms than I do. So I don't need that medicine as much as they do. I don't need that medicine at all, in fact. So you're starting to see how foolish this thinking is. And then at this point, the doctor says, "Uh, look, you, you dummy, this isn't a competition. That's not how this works. You don't get a clean bill of health by being less sick than everyone else around you. You get a clean bill of health by taking the medicine and being cured of the disease. So stop dismissing those people as disease slobs simply because your symptoms, their symptoms are further along than yours. You have the disease too. And you need the cure just as much as they do. So here's the point of all of this. You have a disease called sin, whose ultimate end is death. And you can't take away that sin by simply having less symptoms than the people around you. And all of the supposed good works that you have done can't take away this disease either. Just like you can't simply do push-ups to cure yourself of cancer or a tumor. And the more often you pat yourself on the back for having less symptoms, the more often uh, you, you pat yourself on the back for having less symptoms, for not being the worst person in the world, for being better than the person next to you, the more you're going to convince yourself that you don't need the sin killing medicine that Jesus Christ has come to give. And this, dear saints, is the problem with self righteousness. When you behave in any of the ways that I've already preached about in the sermon, you're simply taking one step further away from the remedy, away from the cure, away from the salvation, from sin and death that Christ has come to give you. 
So repent and turn around and stop looking at those around you. Stop comparing yourself to others and treating others with contempt. Stop making excuses for your sin and stop defending yourself. Do what the tax collector did in the gospel lesson today and simply cry out, God, propitiate me, the sinner. This, dear saints, is the cure to your sin. You're not saved by having as few sins as possible. You're saved by the innocent, bitter suffering and death of Jesus. God's wrath against your sin is propitiated. That means it is taken away when the blood of Jesus is poured out over all of your sins, covering them, hiding them from the eyes of the Father, curing you of the disease of sin and death. The consequence of your lethal disease of wickedness is only taken away through the perfect and holy obedience of Christ. The sinless blood of Christ is the only cure for your sin. The death of Christ is the antidote to your death. The nail-pierced foot of Jesus is the only anti-venom to the venom of self-righteousness that the devil has injected into your heart. The remedy is not to deny that you have this disease. The remedy to sin is to plead for the blood of Christ to be upon you. No matter how many symptoms of sin that you're showing right now. No matter how long it's wreaked havoc on you. That the only way out of this is not by denying your disease and sickness and sin and death. But by claiming the wounds and death of Christ that he has given you as your own. And those who claim the righteous blood of Jesus poured upon them in their baptism. Will go home justified. And those who drop every excuse and let down their defenses, who spit out everyone else's name from their mouth in self-justification and confess their sins into the ears of Christ, those who believe in the forgiveness he speaks will go home justified today. Those who fall on their knees and open their mouths and ask for the mercy of God to be fed to them, who will receive the, the body and blood of Christ and will receive his forgiveness, they will go home justified. So do it. Do exactly that. Humble yourself and see the great need that you have for God's mercy. And then receive the mercy of God which he gives you so richly here today. And when you receive this forgiveness, then you will rightly view everyone else around you. You won't see them as stepping stones or as your competition anymore. You'll see them as your neighbors, as fellow sinners for whom Jesus has died. And just like you, they need the cure found in Jesus' veins. When you see the greater symptoms of sin in others around you, don't exalt yourself over them or tear them down. Do what your Father in heaven has done for you. Be merciful to them. Love them. Cherish them. Confess the gospel into their ears. Show them where they can find the mercy of Jesus that he gives so much of. When they struggle with sin, keep inviting them to church where the cure for sin is found and point them to the wounds in Jesus' wrists and in his side and in his feet and show them that here is the, uh, the, the anti-venom. Here is the antidote. Here is the, the solution for all of your problems in the blood of Christ. Bring them to church with you and teach them to repent. 
so that you both will go home justified. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.